Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. My son Josh is 36. He's a godly, good-natured husband and father, brother, son, and friend. And he's the president of a Christian ministry called Treehouse Mid-Atlantic. We have Treehouse support groups that meet here for teens each Monday evening. And uh, uh, Treehouse is a, an outreach that has as its mission ending hopelessness among today's teens. So to look at Josh today, you would never guess that at the age of, de th of three, he had a stubborn streak of defiance that could be rather distressing to Diane and me at times. One of those moments occurred when we were going somewhere with Diane's parents one time in our family minivan. Now, the normal seating arrangement in our minivan was that, you know, if I was in the driver's seat and Diane would be in the passenger seat, uh, front passenger seat, or vice versa, and then uh, the kids would be seated in the back of the van, uh, Josh in the middle seat, you know, that, that two-person seat in the middle, which had space for people to get back to the, the rear bench seat, and he would be there by himself in the two-person bench seat in his car seat, and then the two girls who are older would be in the far back seat that would seat three, one on either side with a space in the middle. So as we were trying to go somewhere with Diane's parents and get everybody in one vehicle, uh, we had to make some adjustments, right? So I sat up front and my father-in-law sat in the passenger seat up front. Diane went in the far back with the two girls because it was easier for her to do that than grandma or grandpa, which meant that grandma would sit in the middle bench seat with Josh uh, next to him in his car seat. So everybody was uh, buckled in and ready to go, and I was just about to pull the, the minivan sliding door shut when Josh pitched an absolute fit. He started screaming and, and pounding and kicking and saying, I don't want her, I don't want her. <laughs> Poor old granny. You know, what's she, she's sitting next to her dear little grandson. He's saying, I don't want her. And, you know, I said, Josh, you know, it's only for a short ride. Calm down. I know it's not the usual arrangement. We'll be fine. I don't want her. And he just kicked it into high gear. So I had no choice but to unbuckle him and take him out behind the minivan for a little attitude correction session, if you catch my drift. And finally, we were able to get on to our destination. But he was absolutely determined to have his way. It's a tricky thing to discipline your children, isn't it? I mean, uh, we, for instance, didn't, we tried to keep our cool when our kids would do something childish, make a childish mistake, like spill their milk all over the dinner table just as you're about to sit down for your meal. You know, that doesn't warrant discipline. Uh, it's, a, it's a childish mistake. Kids are going to make mistakes. We reserved discipline for those times when our children were being disobedient, defiant, or arrogant. 
and especially if they're being disrespectful toward grandma. We weren't going to tolerate that. I wonder if God looks at us, and to him, we look like toddlers insisting on having our own way. I wonder if he looks at us sometimes acting defiantly, acting as if we're in charge, as if God shouldn't have a say in things. He looks at our disobedience, and, and, and we act as if, you know, we should do what we want to do, and, and we shouldn't have to experience any consequences. And God looks at us, and he must shake his head. It, it, what it looks like is the, the college professor who, though raised in the church, uh, you know, threw his faith away when he went to college himself because, frankly, he didn't want the constraints of religion on him. He just wanted to party. And so he found excuses to throw the faith away. And now he, he delights in helping his students to, to turn away from their parents' faith. And he turns them on to radical political activism instead. Or I wonder if it looks like the Catholic politician who loudly advocates for late-term abortions in contrast to the teaching of his church. Or I wonder if it looks like the man I once knew who had been an elder in his local church who had left his wife for another woman and he said to me, his pastor at the time, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but this is what I want and God's just going to have to forgive me. Or I wonder if it's like any of us when we insist on having our way, telling God to mind his own business, I'm going to do what I want to do. Arrogant defiance. Willfully living as if what God wants doesn't matter, insisting on having my own way, there is nothing surer to bring down the discipline of God in one's life as willfully, even arrogantly living in defiance of his will, living in ways that are an affront to his holiness. And if that's you today, today's passage is a warning for you. In fact, we all need to hear this warning. We shouldn't be surprised at what happens here in Daniel chapter 5. King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of the first four chapters of Daniel, has died after serving 42 years as the king of Babylon. And he had a magnificent rule. And after his 42 years, there was a lot of upheaval and upset within his family trying to figure out who was going to take the throne and after several failed attempts at kings being propped up and then being knocked down, Nabonidus was the one who emerged as the next strong king of Babylon. He ruled for about 17 years, but he was hardly ever home. He was always off fighting some battle somewhere or enjoying another palace in some other part of the realm. And so he appointed his son Belshazzar to reign with him, to be co-regent, kind of a co-king. And Belshazzar was given charge of the fortress city of Babylon and the surrounding province. And so he becomes the main character of chapter 5. Chapter 5 of Daniel basically addresses the question, what if you throw a party and God decides to crash it? In chapter 4, Daniel used Nebuchadnezzar's conversion to affirm that the repentant reap the rewards of grace, however bleak, uh, their pasts. And in this chapter, Daniel uses Belshazzar's sacrilege to declare how the rebellious reap the consequences of God's wrath, however secure their present. Two equally evil kings who demonstrate two vitally important messages, God's complete pardon for the humble and his sure judgment of the proud. It's a story in four movements. 
And with each movement, we'll make an observation about the danger of hardening your heart and living defiantly toward God. So in the first movement, Belshazzar throws a defiant party. It says in chapter five, verse one, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. He throws a big party. Uh, By the way, there is, uh, in the ruins of Babylon, archaeologists have found a room large enough to accommodate a thousand guests this way, and its walls are, are covered in plaster, which is going to play into the story a little bit later. This was the evening of the 12th of October in 539 BC. Outside the walls of Babylon was a foreign army challenging Belshazzar's dominion. But this Babylonian ruler, Belshazzar, was totally unperturbed because he was secure. The Persian invaders had been kept outside of the walls of Babylon for going on two and a half years because the walls of Babylon were 350 feet high. They were 87 feet wide at various points, and the metropolis surrounded by these mammoth walls was itself so spacious that food could be cultivated within its walls, which meant that it was virtually, you know, siege-proof. You couldn't starve these people out. They could grow their own food. Not to mention the fact they had 20 years worth of food already stored away. And as far as water was concerned, that was no problem either because the Euphrates River flowed in under the walls uh, on the north side of the city and flowed out through the south walls of the city, going through sluice gates. And so this was an utterly secure city. People thought it was unconquerable. And here, with the army of the Persians outside his gates, Belshazzar basically is so sure of himself that he throws a raucous party in defiance of the Persians, as if they should make him stop. Well, it's one thing to defy men. It's a whole other order of stupid to live in defiance of God. And that's where Belshazzar crosses a line he never should have crossed. Look at verse 2 where it says, Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, which means he's probably getting a little tipsy, his judgment's not so great anymore. When he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Now, this goes back to 586 BC, 47 years before, when Belshazzar's grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had conquered Jerusalem He not only destroyed the city, but he destroyed the temple of the Lord and took as spoils of war these vessels of gold and silver from the temple. And now the drunken king thinks it would be fun to take these vessels that had been dedicated to a holy purpose by the Jews, fill them with wine, and pass them around for the guests to drink from them. It was a way to show the supremacy of the gods of Babylon while thumbing his nose at the God of Israel. Verse 3 says, Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the kings and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. And so not only do these many pagans present, the lords, the wives of the king, his concubines, not only do they delight in holding these sacred vessels in their unholy hands, but, but in putting them to their unholy lips and drinking deeply, adding to their drunken stupor. But then... They kick all of this ugliness into high gear by using these vessels dedicated to the Lord in worship to their pagan gods. 
So it says in verse four, they drank wine and they praised the gods of silver and, and gold and bronze and iron, wood and stone. Forget about the God of Israel. How much of a God can, can Yahweh be when we hold his sacred vessels in our hands? Let's raise a toast instead to Marduk, to Ishtar, to Nabu. This is about as ugly a scene as you'll find anywhere in scripture. People profaning what is holy by raising a toast to all that is unholy. And so here's observation number one from our text. And that is that people who arrogantly defy God seldom see how foolish and ugly their behavior is. Those who partied that night thought that they were doing a beautiful thing, raising a toast to their gods. The Lord saw it as an arrogant desecration of all that is holy. I think a modern day equivalent might be an item that appeared in the news just last month coming out of St. Petersburg, Florida, where at the Allendale United Methodist Church, senior pastor Andy Oliver invited a seminary student named Isaac Simmons, who performs in drag as Ms. Penny Cost, Pentecost, to deliver the sermon on October 2nd because he wants all people to see people like themselves called by God to preach the gospel. Not sure what gospel they're preaching. In a video of the service, Ms. Pentecost is called upon to join the pastor in the front of the, the sanctuary to present a children's sermon. And so the pastor calls up all the children, come on up for the children's sermon. Two little girls come forward, which probably is an indication of the health of this church. Two little girls come up to meet in front the drag queen who is decked out in a black sequin dress and a huge wig. The United Methodist News Service, which serves as the official United Methodist Church news outlet, has touted Simmons as the first drag queen to become a certified candidate for United Methodist Church ordination. What's most astounding, perhaps, is that while celebrating all this, they fail to see in it the utter desecration of the place they're in and what an affront their behavior is to the holiness of God. They make a mockery of all things holy and call it good. Well, that's pretty much what Belshazzar and his drunken friends were doing that night, using holy vessels of the temple to toast their pagan gods. But God will not be mocked. He is patient but he will not put up with man's arrogant defiance forever. Which brings us to the second movement of our story where Belshazzar sees the handwriting on the wall. In verse five, it says, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. So in other words, it's a place where the wall is illuminated by the light coming from the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote, apparently some kind of like disembodied hand, just a hand appears. And the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. He is rocked by the appearance of this hand writing on his wall. Whatever the message on the wall means, Belshazzar knows it can't be good. He began this night convinced of his security within the walls of Babylon. In defiance of the Persians, he throws a lavish party for a thousand of his closest friends. And in defiance of Israel's God, he uses sacred vessels to toast the gods made with human hands. But his sense of security is utterly destroyed when a disembodied hand appears uninvited to declare the judgment of God. What he has done is so egregious, so ugly that this, this hand appears 
to announce his judgment. But unlike Nebuchadnezzar, there is no opportunity given for repentance. You know, when we use the phrase, the writing is on the wall, it comes straight out of this passage. You realize that. But when we talk about how, oh, the writing is on the wall, what we mean by that is that there are clear signs that something unpleasant or unwelcome is about to happen. As in, after last week's terrible loss, the handwriting is on the wall for the coach, right? He's likely to be fired. With everything going on in our culture in America today, some might conclude that the handwriting is on the wall for us. And especially for large segments of the church in America. It was August of 2009. Diane and I were living at the time in Minneapolis, St. Paul in the Twin Cities. And we were aware of the fact that the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America was having its annual convention right there in the Twin Cities at the Minnesota Convention Center. Right next door to the convention center was Central Lutheran Church, the flagship church of the ELCA in Minneapolis, a large church, almost like a cathedral, that was going to be used as the conference church for that week. Well, it was just before 2 p.m. on Wednesday, August 19, right before one of the most significant votes that was going to be taken by the assembly that week, they were slated to vote on a sexuality statement that, if passed, would open the door for the ordination of openly gay clergy and the blessing of same-sex unions. And at that very time, a tornado warning was sounded. In the heart of Minneapolis, 1,045 voting delegates were inside the convention center listening to the winds howling outside. One reporter said a palpable blanket of fear descended on the entire group as the doors to the outside hallways were shut and closing us in the giant hall, which was apparently the safe place to be away from, from the glass windows on the outside of the convention hall. The uh, chairman of the ad hoc committee on sexual, the sexuality statement got up and, and jokingly said, well, we trust the weather is not a commentary on our work. Well, just after 2 p.m., a tornado hit downtown Minneapolis, which never happens. It knocked the cross right off the steeple of Central Lutheran Church, right across from the convention center, and caused some damage to the convention center itself. All the while, the sexuality statement was being passed by exactly the two-thirds vote required. One more vote against would have killed the whole thing, but it passed. And one reporter says, I walked outside afterward to look at it. The steel cross was dangling high up in the air. As the delegates left the convention center, they saw for the first time the cross atop the Central Lutheran Church dangling at a precarious angle. Some saw it as a warning from God not to go in the direction they were going. Others blew it off as a mere coincidence. One who had been a missionary in Africa said, people over there would have seen the dangling cross, stopped everything, and reconsidered. What was especially weird was that the weather folks in the Twin Cities hadn't predicted any rough weather for that day. This tornado just kind of popped up a little south of the convention center, skipped over the interstate highway, hit the convention center, and knocked the, steeple, uh, the cross off the steeple of the church next door and then lifted away and caused no other damage at all. John Piper, who was the pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church, a very well-known pastor in the Twin Cities, right down the road a ways, thought that the tornado signified a warning from God to the Lutherans. 
As one writer put it, is it possible that God already knew what the Lutherans were going to vote? So he ripped off the cross from the nearest ELCA to show what he thought? Or does he simply not leave his calling card in such dramatic ways? If last week's events do not constitute God's warning or judgment, what does? Which leads me to observation number two, and that is when you see the handwriting on the wall, it may be too late for you. When you see the handwriting on the wall, it may be too late for you. You can only live in arrogant defiance of God and his ways for so long before you begin to see cracks in the plaster, if not the writing on the wall. For the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, it had been over 20 years of declining attendance. 20 years, one year after the other, of declining attendance before they even took that vote in August of 2009. For us as a country, I think we should probably be paying attention to the, the violence in our streets, the rampant drug problem that we have, our propensity to call good what God calls evil, and the nearly complete breakdown of our political process. For you as an individual, the handwriting on the wall may be that addiction that has taken over your life and is wrecking havoc. It could be the promiscuous behavior that has left you with a nasty disease but no meaningful relationships. Or maybe it's the warning from your boss that if you don't get your anger under control, you may soon lose your job. Some will go their merry way pretending not to see the handwriting on the wall, acting as if they're still large and in charge and that God has nothing to do with it. Belshazzar, at least, doesn't blow off the handwriting on the wall, and he doesn't pretend it's nothing. He wants to know what it means, and so he calls all those who are currently serving as the wise men of Babylon, and he brings them in, and he says, hey, look at this. Tell me what it means, but they can't. This is the third time the wise men in the book of Daniel have failed their king, and so the, the queen who must be the queen mother because uh, all of Belshazzar's wives are already there with him in the banquet hall. The queen mother, probably Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, comes down to see what all the hubbub is. And, and when she comes in and finds out what, Neb- what Belshazzar is so worked up about, she tells him, you know, when your father Nebuchadnezzar was king and he had a situation like this and the wise men couldn't help him, he would rely on a guy named Daniel one of the Hebrews, whom he called Belteshazzar. Why don't you call him? Now, Daniel, at this point, was probably pushing about 80 years old and was likely in kind of a semi-retirement, not active in the court of, of Babylon anymore. But they found him and they brought him in. And uh, that brings us then to the third movement of our, of our story where Daniel declares Belshazzar's guilt. See, Belshazzar so wants to know the meaning of the handwriting on the wall that he tells Daniel that he'll reward him handsomely if only he'll tell him what it means. The wise men were unable, maybe because they didn't know the language it was in, but it's just Aramaic, and that was a pretty common language of the time. Might be it was written in a script that they couldn't identify. More likely, it was uh, just the combination of words. It was kind of like a riddle that they didn't understand what it meant. But Daniel is able to understand it. But before Daniel goes on to give the interpretation, he gives Belshazzar a little history lesson. And he says, you know, your father, Nebuchadnezzar, was blessed by God with a vast kingdom and all kinds of glory and power. But it went to his head. He became proud 
And God had to bring him low. And so he spent a period of time in the, in the fields acting like an ox, eating grass and, and uh, getting covered with dew. Well, we saw that story last week in chapter four, remember? But he repented. He realized that it's God most high who rules the kingdoms of mankind and sets over them whom he will. And so he humbled himself before God and was restored to his throne. Daniel goes on to say to Belshazzar that your problem is that you knew all this, but you didn't learn from the experience of your predecessor. He says in verse 22, and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in here before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose ways are all your ways, you have not honored Here's observation number three. If you don't learn from your parents' mistakes, you'll likely fall even harder than they did. If you don't learn from your parents' mistakes, you'll likely fall harder than they did. You know how most of us grow up saying about our parents, I'll never be like them. And then one day you look in the mirror and you're like, I'm just like them, only worse. Well, Belshazzar witnessed it for himself not the story, uh, whether he witnessed it for himself or not, the story about Belshazzar or Nebuchadnezzar humbling himself under the hand of God certainly had been passed down through the royal family. And Belshazzar may have even had the opportunity to read it for himself. Nebuchadnezzar's own testimony in his own words is recorded in Daniel chapter four. And still Belshazzar went down the same road of arrogant defiance of the most high God, even going so far as drinking wine from the vessels taken from Yahweh's temple and and using them to raise a toast in praise of the gods of Babylon that are no gods at all, but only things made of silver and gold and stone and iron, bronze, and wood. Belshazzar should have learned from his father's error, but instead he committed an even greater offense in arrogant defiance of the Lord. If you don't learn from your parents' mistakes, you'll likely fall harder than they did. We've seen this in our old lifetimes, at least I have, right? So baby boomers thumbed their nose at God and had their summer of love and the sexual revolution. And instead of learning from the wreckage of their boomer parents, what wreckage they'd made of their marriages and families, the next generation went even further down the same road, declaring same-sex marriage to be a good thing. And is it any surprise that in the current generation, not only does gender confusion reign, but also any and every kind of sexual expression is being embraced as fine and dandy. And if boomers paid a heavy price for violating God's law, how hard will it be for the generations that have followed suit in going even further in arrogantly defying God? There will be a dear price to pay. And Daniel gets around to that now in the last movement of our story where God's judgment falls on Belshazzar. Now, having already explained why this is all happening to Belshazzar, because he didn't learn from his father's mistake, Daniel finally gets around to interpreting for him the handwriting on the wall. It says in verse 23, the God in whose hand is your breath 
And whose are all your ways you have not honored? Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. Did you notice the connection there between verses 23 and 24? Your breath, your life is held in the hand of God, but you have not honored him, so he has sent this hand to write on your wall. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. In Aramaic, mene, mene, tekel, ufarsin. Three Aramaic words. Mene means to count. Tekel means to weigh. And parson means to divide, to separate. So no wonder the wise men didn't quite get it. Count, count, weigh, divide? What does that mean? Well, Daniel says this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. You've come up short, Belshazzar. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And sure enough, just as the inscription predicted, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Here's observation number four. It's a very bad idea to anger the one who holds your life in his hand. Very bad idea to anger the one who holds your life in his hand. While Belshazzar was defying God and toasting the gods of Babylon with the stolen vessels from Yahweh's temple, the Persian army was quietly completing a canal that it was digging to divert water from the Euphrates into a nearby lake. Which meant that that night, the stream bed of the Euphrates dried up sufficiently that Persian and Median soldiers could come under the sluice gates on the north and under the sluice gates on the south and enter silently into the city and took control before anybody realized what was happening. It was a battle that was fought without a fight. It was won without a fight. And then Belshazzar was hunted down, captured, and put to death before an alarm could even be sounded that night. What the hand on the, the writing on the a wall came true. I think this story stands as a warning not only to arrogant kings, but to anyone who lives in willful defiance of God. Go back to the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. It was founded in 1988, a merger of three different Lutheran denominations, it was five million strong, one of the largest denominations, Protestant denominations in the country at the time. For decades, many of its pastors explained away and disregarded teachings of the Bible that were hard or unpopular. Instead of speaking against the current of society and taking a stand on the Bible, the Bible was reinterpreted to flow with the currents of society. Now think about that. When the church is telling you the same thing as society is, who needs the church anymore? And so the even before that fateful meeting in August of 2009, the ELCA was in a serious state of decline, losing members every year since its founding. And since 2009, the decline of the denomination has been even more precipitous as its clergy embrace anti-biblical teaching about sexuality and welcome drag queens into their pulpits and children's classes, even ordaining them to the ministry a report from their own office of research predicts that if things continue on this trajectory, the denomination will cease to exist by 2041. 
The bottom line of all this is God will judge our arrogant defiance. That's true for churches and denominations. It's true for rulers and nations, and it's true for us individually as well. For all those ways that we live in defiance of God, thumbing our nose at him, saying, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to have it my way. I like the way Brian Chappell puts it. He says, this is not an easy message. Who wants to hear talk about judgment? But if sin has no consequence, if evil has no check, if justice never comes, then what good is God and of what benefit is his grace? If grace is amazing, then it must rescue us from something. And that something is defined in this passage by three words. Mene, you have been counted. Your days are numbered. As the Bible says, man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Tackle, you've come up short. Well, guess what? The Bible says all of us have sinned and fall what? Short of the glory of God. Parson, your kingdom is, is being taken away. The Bible says the wages of sin is what? Death. And so God has numbered the days that are appointed to us. We have been weighed in the balances and found wanting And ultimately, the judgment is death. But the good news is that that judgment need not be our destiny. Because the truth is that grace is amazing, amazing, and it's available to us. The answer is not to run from God, as so many are prone to do, but to run to Jesus, who is your Savior. To run to that one who saw you in your your predicament and gave his life to pay for your sin so that you could be brought into relationship with God and have new life with him. And so the Bible tells us that God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life to all who trust in him. And that's my prayer for all of us today. As we take a good, deep look inside, maybe we'll confront that little Belshazzar inside of all of us. That little character that wants to have its own way in defiance of a holy God. And maybe as God brings conviction to our hearts, we'll surrender before it's too late. We'll say, God have mercy on me a sinner. Save me by your grace. You take control. You have your way. Let me live for you. Let's bow in an attitude of prayer. If you're already a believer in Jesus Christ, then I would encourage you to take these quiet moments to do a little self-assessment, to look within and ask, you know, could I be guilty of that kind of arrogant defiance toward the Lord? those things I do that I know God disproves, but I insist on having my way and doing it anyway? Is there something in my life I should repent of, be done with, by God's grace and with the help of his spirit? Maybe this will be a time of repentance for some of us as believers. But for others of us, maybe there's someone here today who's feeling a deep sense of conviction because 
yeah, Belshazzar in some ways describes you. You've thumbed your nose at God for a long time. You've told him to get out of your life. I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to figure this out for myself. I know this or that is, is against your law, but it's what I want. I beg of you before it's too late that you repent of that attitude, repent of that sin and turn in faith to Christ, the one who gave his life on the cross to deliver you from the guilt and grip of sin. And if this is that crossroads moment for you when you need to say, you know what, I'm gonna stop doing the Belshazzar thing I'm going to give my, my life to Jesus. Then from the depths of your heart, you might pray a prayer something like this. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I've demanded to have my own way, and I realize how foolish that is. Like everyone else, I have done things and said things and thought things that violate your holy will but I thank you for sending Jesus to do for me what I couldn't do for myself. That you sent your sinless son to come to this earth and die a death I should have died. I thank you for raising him from the dead so that in him I can not only be washed clean of my sin, but have new life with you. Lord Jesus, I come confessing my sin, asking your forgiveness, asking you to come in and wash me clean to make me new, to make me yours. Now if that is, or something like it, is the prayer of your heart today, would you just slip your hand up so I can see it? I'd love to be able to pray for you. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Thank you. For those of you who've raised your hands today, I'm going to pray for you in just a moment, but there's something I'd love for you to do before you leave. On your way out to the parking lot in either foyer, you're going to see a great big green banner that says yes on it. We have a little booklet we'd like to give to you today. It's called Saying Yes to a Relationship with Jesus and explains more of, of what it means to be forgiven in Christ and to have a new life with him. All you need to do is go to one of those banners and find the, the person next to it and say, I said yes. And they'll put one of these little books in your hands to take with you today. Lord, I thank you for even hard passages like Daniel 5, passages that speak of judgment. I thank you that you love us enough to warn us to warn us away from a fate we deserve, but one that by your grace you want to deliver us from. I pray for all those who've raised their hands today to indicate they're saying yes to Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you would send them out with the assurance that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness I pray that you would send them out today with the assurance that he who believes has eternal life. And Lord, for all of us 
I pray that you would keep challenging us by your spirit, pointing out those places in our lives where there are still pockets of rebellion, places that we need to surrender to you. That together, Lord Jesus, we would be a community of followers who bring honor and glory to you and not shame. We want to live as forgiven and free people under your amazing grace that we celebrate today. Amen.